When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 16th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I am so excited to be joined on this episode by Carrie Fukunaga and Idris Elba, the two men most responsible for Netflix's first original narrative film, Beasts of No Nation. Carrie adapted a book into the script, directed it, and even served as cinematographer. Idris was a producer and one of the stars in a role supporting a first-time actor from Ghana where the film was shot. And this film has been stirring up buzz since its unveiling over Labor Day weekend at both the Venice and Telluride Film Festivals. It then became a day-and-date release, released in theaters by Bleecker Street, and then at the same time on Netflix. So it's gotten a lot of exposure, didn't do great in theaters, but has found a huge following on Netflix and has received tons of endorsements, both on Twitter and social media like that, but also in the form of events that have been hosted by everyone from Jake Gyllenhaal to Sally Field in support of the film. It also recently landed a field-leading five nominations at the Independent Spirit Awards, including one for Elba, in the supporting actor category, and three for Fukunaga in the cinematographer, director, and best feature category because he was also a producer. So we will talk about everything from the Apocalypse Now sort of production that this was to the pros and cons of releasing a major film through Netflix to whether or not Idris is even interested in the role that so many of us want him to play next, James Bond. But before we do that, as always, let's just take a brief look back at the week that was since our last podcast. The big news was that two of the three remaining Oscar contenders that hadn't been unveiled finally were. Those are David O. Russell's Joy, which reunites him with Jennifer Lawrence, Bradley Cooper, and Robert De Niro, who also starred in his Oscar-acclaimed films Silver Linings Playbook and American Hustle. And the other was Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, which reunites him with a lot of his stock company from past movies, including Kurt Russell, Samuel L. Jackson, Michael Madsen, and many others, as well as introducing in a very memorable role to the company, Jennifer Jason Lee. There were also announcements galore. You had the National Board of Review announcing its winners, who will be feted in January. The big one was Mad Max Fury Road, which took Best Film and a number of other accolades. Meanwhile, the New York Film Critics Circle made its picks for a ceremony that will happen around the same time, and they went with Carol. 
Oddly enough, the National Board of Review's top pick was completely shut out by the New York film critics, and the New York film critics' top pick was completely shut out by the NBR. So it's not like either of these announcements really clarified anything, but they do perhaps call attention to movies that people were not yet excited to see and now will perhaps check out. The other announcement that was of major note this week was that the Academy winnowed down its best documentary contenders to a shortlist of 15, from which the five nominees will eventually be chosen. And there were no super high-profile snubs, although a number of films that I would have liked to have seen included, such as Meet the Patels, which is terrific, and The Wolf Pack, and Call Me Lucky, were not among the 15. But all of the highest-profile contenders were, and they are all worth checking out. Now all that's left to see is Star Wars, which is going to have its world premiere on the 14th before opening in theaters on the 18th, probably to the biggest opening in history. And we'll see at that point if Star Wars is a best picture player, as the first installment in the franchise was back in the 70s, but as the subsequent five installments have not been. In the meantime, though, let's get back to Beasts of No Nation and to our conversation with Carrie Fukunaga and Idris Elba. Well, thank you both for coming in and doing this. And to begin with, I just wanted to know when you first became aware of each other's work, if you can remember the first project that the other one did that caught your attention. Idris, can we start with you? Mm. Yeah, it was an ombre for me. Um, I'd seen that movie ages ago, man. And I revisited it once uh, Carrie and I had sat down. But I remember watching that movie a long time back and going, wow, that was really, uh, that moved me, that film. Um, I, if I'm honest, I probably didn't really check who directed it. I was just like, that's a good film. Sorry, mm-hmm. man. Just being really <laughs> honest. Um, <clears throat> I was like, of course, Carrie, yes, of course. Uh, and then, you know, I've been a fan yeah. since. Um, I was really, really excited that, you know, Carrie called me up. Um, because, you know, he's a, a filmmaker that's sort of under the radar, you know, and like when you get really cool people that are under the radar and they come up to, you know, what could seemingly be like a commercial actor. Um, it was, yeah, it was a really nice, nice call, nice touch. Carrie, how about you? Um, I, I think I first heard of, of Idris as uh, Stringer Bell in The Wire. And then, then I realized also that I had seen him in so many other things and What's I think is striking about that is how much this guy disappears into roles. Uh, I remember reading a story years ago, I think when I was living in London, about how like uh, you know fans of The Wire met you, and when they heard your English accent, they were so shocked. They're like, "Wait, <laughs> you're not from Baltimore?" <laughs> yeah, that used to happen all the time. I even had I don't know if I told you I had a accent crisis. Because I, I would hate to see the disappointment in people's faces when they heard my English accent, <laughs> yeah. and their eyes would just go. What? Man? <laughs> You're not stringer? What? And I, I, so I would, I would sort of flirt between American and English just because I was so nervous about them. Funny. Recognizing my own accent. Well, one thing you've both uh, done, which I find interesting, is you've not, you know, some people tend to work in the same genre or the same scale of film or whatever. Both of you have, have been all over the place with this. And I just wonder if you psychoanalyze yourself again, starting with you, Idris, why, why might that be? You could be. You know, you could be doing, I would imagine, anything you want. Why is it that you, you choose such varied stuff? You know what? My, my philosophy is really simple in that. Um, and it comes from, you know, and being a working actor, you know, being a sort of jobbing actor. 
you know, you know, early on in my career, you know, you didn't get much choice. You went for an audition. Your agent said, this is a good audition. Go for it. And a lot of times I'd get the job. OK, but they were always varied because I was just, you know, hungry to to get anything I could. And when I got to a stage where I had a little bit more choice in that process, I realized I did not want to ever repeat myself and do the same roles twice mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. But the main reason is that, you know, I just felt like that wasn't. I wasn't stretching myself or learning everything if I did, if I played detectives all the time or drug dealers all the time. I just, you know, my philosophy now is like, can I work with people that are going to take me into a place that I haven't gone? And can I grow from that performance? Can I learn something? And can I completely disappear in that role? And, And that's it. There's no real sort of like philosophy apart from I just want to be varied, have a varied career. And Carrie, I mean, there couldn't be two more different movies than Jane Eyre and Beasts or true detective uh, as a series and sin nombre or you know any as same thing with you it just kind of uh, is there any rhyme or rhythm to it i you know it's i was going to actually ask idris you know furthering on his things yeah. we have actually never had this conversation about being third culture mm-hmm. and uh, having you know, a family that's not really uh from the place where you were raised. Mm. So then what culture are you really a part of? Of course, you're like, you're part of where you grow up, you're part of, but you're also part of your nurturing, and then you have your, just your DNA, which is, drives so much of your instincts, right? And uh, I don't know, for me, you know, having a diverse background and growing up in a place like the Bay Area, how that affect, affects, you know, what I'm interested in, but I know I've always been curious. So I think I vacillate between being like an empty vessel and a full vessel, because you have to be a full vessel if you're going to create something, but you have to be empty to receive as well. And for people who may not know about your backgrounds, can you share where you're both from and how you came to be where, where you are? Yeah, my, my parents are from West Africa. My mom born and raised in Ghana, my dad in Sierra Leone, but I was raised in England. But yeah, very much so. My, my parents, my dad's culture, Sierra Leonean culture, is very much part of my, my DNA. Uh, and yeah, I think I definitely fell in between, you know, being raised as an English kid. East London kid and sort of like, you know, straight off the boat, West African, you know. <laughs> At what um, age did you go to England? No, I was born oh, there. Oh, you were born in England. I was born, okay. and, born and raised in, in London. Uh, it's quite an interesting point because it does, you're right, you know, the, sort of your, that's that certainly where my parents grew up, what my dad um, likes in terms of actors and films had a had an influence on me, actually. Interesting. Yeah, he was a massive Charlton Heston fan. <laughs> really? Yeah, and Kirk Douglas. So the heroes, the big... Uh, the big guys. Epic heroes, yeah. Kirk Douglas, interesting. Yeah. Anyway. And, and Carrie, for uh, people who may not know, I think your father was Japanese? Is yeah, that right? he's yeah. a Japanese-American, actually. Japanese-American? So he was... Um, in fact, I'm fourth generation, so we're not by no means fresh off the boat. Right. But... Um, uh, my father was born in internment camps during World War II, and so were my uncles... And uh, I was raised less so with that, that side of the family talking about it, but then my white side of the family saying, well, you know, you know, your dad's born in the camp, you know, your grandparents born in the camp. And they would, they would talk more about it, actually, than, than the actual you know, side that had experienced it. And so that caused a curiosity, too, because they wouldn't speak about it. I wanted to know more about it. Mm-hmm. And I think being aware that your family was imprisoned sort of from their origin creates a different perspective on what, you know, being a part of a culture actually means. And how do you think it's shaped your uh, creative choices? I think it's made me always look, you know, to the other, you know, whether it's like, you know, what I mean, others and outside of my experience, right? So rather than exoticizing it, trying to figure out what it is, what, what, what makes us different, but then also what makes us the same. 
it was interesting that in terms of the connection to Africa, obviously, Idris, you've talked about your familial connections there, and particularly to Ghana, where this film was shot, Beast was shot. Carrie, I understand that your interest in African child soldiers goes back to your days as an undergrad. What happened there that brought it onto your radar as something you were interested in? Um, well, what really happened was that I was studying at a political science institute in, in France, and um, I had chosen the school because it was in the Alps, and therefore I could snowboard. <laughs> and I got injured while I was there, and uh, it meant that I actually, you know, had to focus on different things. And I, and I really actually, for the first time in my life, focused on my schoolwork, which I hadn't done until then. And I think getting involved, especially at, at a school like the Institute of Political Science, where I was at in, in France, was, was a very well-respected school. Um, I think that interest, uh, uh, that sort of leaning in and engaging with my education completely changed, you know, how I took in or received what I was learning. So rather than just learning by road or, you know, getting through the test, I was actually like trying, trying to wrap my head around and then actually for the first time becoming engaged with the actual material. And resource wars was a big part of that. And uh, the, the wars in Liberia and Sierra Leone were ra- raging at that time. Uh, the, Bal- the Balkans were also raging at that time. And the, there was places of conflict. And um, I think that, that that's sort of where it all started. Well, I guess one, one thing that I wonder if, you, if either of you have, have a theory about is why it is that in American cinema, Africa as a, as a focal point of movies has rarely been a focal point of movies, and when it has been, it's been generally something like out of Africa, where it's through the eyes of somebody coming to Africa who's not from there. Why is it that? And I, I also come with a certain curiosity about this. My my mother is from South Africa, and I, you know, so I've also had an interest in the African continent. And I can't figure it out myself. So, what's your take on that? Hmm. I think there's a, there's a lot of gatekeepers in terms of how a movie gets made, and then uh, there's also you know, who's creating the content, right? So Hollywood is inherently American uh, media, and exportation of American culture, right? And it's, it's, it's still an inviting place. We, we, I say we as if I'm part of it now, but they, they invite, you know, people from around the world to take part in it. But in terms of the stories that are being told, very rarely are they stories if they're, you know, coming out of this sort of fountain of Los Angeles and Hollywood, are they going to be from the perspective of, you know, regional areas and that's also partially just because um the world cinema and 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 cinema in different countries is oftentimes financed by the government so they're they're able to make their own movies and those movies about those countries are going to be consumed by local residents and then and then hollywood is sort of reserved for like larger content temple productions Mm -hmm. right so maybe that's a big part of it yeah so i guess there's a bit of uh you know know, so you have african-americans in america and then you have Africans. I think, you know, there's a process of, you know, sort of separation by design. And also because, you know, at one stage, the African-American story, you know, came from a very sort of like uh, suppressed point of view. So there was probably never any room to even acknowledge the origin of Mm African-Americans. No way. And conveniently, if we can make Africans look completely alien to African-Americans, then 
you, you, you don't have to spend much time. You don't have to focus on it. And if you do focus on it, it you know, it can be from a sort of perspective of the, you know, the, the sort of the Hollywood lens. Right. Um, I think there may be something in that, in why Africa was just stayed. You know, like coming from England, Africa was always depicted as, you know, Oxfam commercials and, um, you know, kids suffering and flies on faces. And I remember growing up as a kid, you know, not not being, you know, you could not say you were African. That was just uncool. And you had West Indian culture who sat stand beside you and be like, are you African? Oh, man. And I have a name like Idris, Idrissa. You know, I, I, so ultimately, you know, Africa cinema just did not exist in a, in a, in a way. And now we're starting to see uh, like um, the doors open actually more and more so. Exposure, it's, it's all about exposure too, right? Or accessibility. Obviously there's been a thriving film industry in countries like Senegal, Burkina Faso. Yeah. Um, and Nigeria obviously mm-hmm. has one of the largest, you know, film production productions in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many movies are made there every year, but far more than Hollywood. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I think accessibility or the the means to see the films is a big part of sort of that absence of voice. So this movie, I believe, is the first one that was ever first American production ever made in Ghana. And so I want to ask you how that decision was made to go and try to make a film in a place where there wouldn't be that infrastructure that you're normally going to have when you make a bit when you make a project and just kind of. You know, I've read that, Carrie, it's almost a masochistic thing with you when you pick locations to pick, like, brutally tough places to do it. How did you decide to actually do this in Ghana itself as opposed to somewhere standing in as a, as a West African nation? Well, like Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> we won't name which African films were shot in Hawaii, but quite a few. Uh, I, I think... Uh, it's, it's difficult to say authenticity when you're talking about a film that didn't actually name the country it shoots in. Right. But I think there is there is a sort of a West African identity. There's, you know, there's a West African economic unity. There's West African uh, agreements in terms of, like, peacekeeping and, and how, the, you know, the, how to manage uh, peace and conflict resolution. So I'm just going to generalize West Africa for right now. Yeah. Um, the, the, the choice of Ghana uh, for, for Uzo and I originally, and then once it just became involved— was a priority because we wanted we didn't want to shoot in South Africa you know and that was the next sort of like most it was really the most practical and the most logical place to shoot in it from a production perspective but not from an authenticity perspective mm-hmm. and um, what shooting in Ghana offered us not only was um, geographically you know to, you know topographically you know what it looks like and also the cultures that existed there and, and you know, every every country has dozens of tribes and tribal languages uh, so access to tribes that exist throughout West Africa um, and their languages and, and you know, uh, uh, actors who could make up, you know, all those different parts uh, to, to show that diversity. We had actors from Cameroon all the way to Sierra Leone in this wow. thing. So um, it offered an opportunity to just really keep it regional. And with uh, primarily actors from the area, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. pretty much only. Mm. Pretty much, yeah. Which is, which is you know... Frustratingly overlooked, you know, massively. You know, you, you'll see a film that says it's in West Africa, but it's obviously shot in South Africa or in the Mozambique or something. Mm-hmm. Africa, the actors look like they're from Mozambique. Right, right. They don't look like they're from Sierra Leone. Right. You know, you, know you, you get that sort of 
people just sort of, oh, who would know the difference? You know, right. and that was just so frustrating and annoying for someone that comes from yeah, West there is Africa. A, yeah. yeah, I mean, I remember, like, you know, seeing Memoirs of a Geisha, and there, I don't think there's any Japanese actors in that movie. <laughs> I, 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 um, when I played Nelson Mandela, you know, I, I struggled with that massively, and so oh. did the South African people, you know, because as Africans, we're like, you, bro, you know, you're not West, you're not Southern, Southern African, you just don't have the the the, the, the gene makeup. At the same time, I'm sure they want their story told, and if you, if Idris Elba is playing Nelson Mandela, people are going to see it. Absolutely, absolutely. But we had to overcome. I had to overcome, sure. and, and, and I had to educate my director about right. why that that was an issue for me, and why we have to pay very special attention yeah. to you know to the cultures sure. um, from a aesthetic point of view. You know? So the novel that kind of inspired you with this, uh, Carrie, was something you came across years ago, right? So why was there the unusually long gestation period for this one. What what happened? Uh, I think a large part of it is due to the contents of the story. So you know, uh, the film's pretty faithful to to Agu's journey. There are some things we changed, but essentially, it's it's a story about a boy in in, in war and what happens to him. And there's there's no white savior, uh, and and despite there being hope, it's a fairly dark film still and a very difficult film to watch. And many, many people have made comments about that, but it's not impossible to watch. It's not as masochistic as my location scouting. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's a film that doesn't make sense financially. Like, even when we try to go around and get pre-sales two years ago, everyone's like, we really like Idris, we really like Carrie, we don't know how to sell this film. Right. So no one put any money in to begin with. Mm. You know, and in and, and the same respect, when we... When it first got optioned, it was optioned for me by Focus Features. And within two years, they, they knew they weren't making it, so they shelved it. And then Amy Kaufman and I were able to get the rights out uh, for the, the novel and keep those going until we could find the right partners, which ended up being Red Crown. Yes. Well, you mentioned uh, sort of uh, anticipated resistance to this, and I can only think that in terms of, again, there, are not, there have not been very many American films that have primarily revolved around the black experience in any way. But the most recent thing that came along, I think, 12 Years a Slave, which was obviously a terrific film, but there was such resistance from people in this country and particularly even in this industry to seeing that movie because they heard it was very upsetting and and violent and all of that. So, you know, if they're reacting that way to a film about their own country's experience, is is it fair to assume that part of this is people, you know, struggling to make the next leap and saying, why should I care about a place that I don't even have a connection to in any way I mean is that was that something you've encountered as well um well I don't know I think <clears throat> I don't know I don't think I'm qualified to answer that to be honest well, I, from what I've heard you know it's obviously a, I'm not doing metrics on this thing or exit surveys but uh <laughs> just family and friends like even I couldn't even get my aunt to watch a film I mean she finally did but right. took some real coaxing and she was there She was, I thought she had come to see the movie and she's like well I'll just maybe have dinner with you instead you what know? was and her was, resistance? she felt like it was going to be too difficult for her to watch because of everything that she had read and ultimately after she watched it she said no I, I, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be in terms of the pain of watching it but somehow when the word like that gets out there it's, I don't think it's an issue what the subject of the film is about as much as it is what the experience of watching it is going to be like mm. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So what made you, and I know there are many things that could have been, but what made you think of this gentleman, Mr. Elba, for the film? How did you first reach out? Well, uh, I sent him an email. But um, I, what, where's the slot for it available? What's that? Where's the slot? Was it available? <laughs> he, does, he does an incredible Nigerian yes, accent. We, 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 I'm, I'm still in shock from that. That was for at the Governor's Awards for folks who don't get the reference. But anyway, yeah, he, he did it for a full. He he was committed. He, he stuck was with committed. it. Yeah, yeah. I give it to him. <laughs> it was yeah, it was good. Um, uh, the only reason I know he's Nigerian is is because uh, um, Abraham turns to me he's like. That's a good Nigerian accent. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sitting behind Will Smith, yeah. who just did a whole movie with the with the Nigerian accent. Oh, did he really? And, and I wondered what he was thinking. But anyway, taking notes. Yeah, taking notes. Um, I saw uh, was it last year uh, when McConaughey was um, doing the uh, presentation of awards at Golden Globes. He was doing a Mississippi accent, but not many people picked up on it. And I realized he was doing that for Free State of Jones because I asked him after, I'm like, were you doing a Mississippi accent? Because I know his Texan draw. Right. And, and you know, I spent six months with the guy. And uh, he's like, yeah, it's a Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, That's a, that should be a new thing. Why not? Make, you know, just, just, just random sports. I love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> But how did we even get onto that? What were we talking? Oh, well, <laughs> why we picked this guy? Yes, um, <laughs> I, you know, there, there. I have a very short list of actors that I, I, want, I really want to work with, and um, uh, Idris has always been up there. And uh, uh, this, this was just a no-brainer, really. And there wasn't really anyone else I wanted to go to for this role. So if he said no, uh, then I would have had to rethink the whole strategy. But. Um, uh, luckily, you know, we had a, we had a short phone call while I was on set on True Detective, and talked about it. And I made promises because the the script, his character in the script, wasn't well written yet. Uh, I definitely admit, and it, I had to go away for a year and try and figure out what we can do together to like make this a character that isn't just you know a one dimensional bad guy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Andrew, you, when you came on first, I mean, I guess I wonder if there were reservations about coming on first of all but also once you did you you came on also as a producer so if you can talk about that yeah i mean the reservations you know i you know carrie and i wanted to do it immediately with carrie because i knew that journey where the script was and where it would end up and what i could bring to it i think i was, I, I was so looking forward to that journey i knew immediately that he was collaborative enough to allow me to be in and help construct that um, it's difficult, you know, writer, director sometimes, you know, the, the, their point of view is certainly <clears throat> hard to penetrate. But there was a lot of trust in the beginning. And so, you know, we, we, we went on that journey together, which was, uh, and ultimately, you know, a lot of it, <clears throat> he trusted 
that instinctually that when we get on set it was going to be there which is which is a you know a huge um achievement for both of us to sort of let go of that sort of the unknown and just get on with it um and then you know from a business point of view you know um it's 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 an ever changing sort of environment when you're an actor that can help raise money and you know luckily for me i have sort of a, a marketplace that is international and you know i was absolutely 100% willing to to lend that in any way i could to sort of secure money bonding whatever we needed to do as as a producer can i say i was a hands-on producer i can't because um to, to, the, 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 i came on quite late and then even in the post process you know red crown and carrie's team have done a lot of the work but essentially i was definitely a sort of like a a, a, a just a pillar a foundation component of the, of the of the project, um, and it was it was eye opening for me. Um, I'm, so, I'm so thankful for it. Um, whenever I see my name up there, I sort of kind of have a little sniggle as a, as a as a producer. But then I think to myself, you know what, man? Like actually, that's you know the new way to produce yeah. is to, to lend you know some some foundation to a project like this. And dude, I you know my parents, you know um, we lost family in Sierra Leone. Um, a lot of family and you know I was very I was nervous to even tell my mum because I know she would have said you, you're not going to Sierra Leone are you don't go to Sierra Leone because you know it was it was just like there's a massive fear yeah. of, 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 of you know of what happened in Sierra Leone and how that would be brought up again perhaps and I um, you know I, I didn't think twice about doing this film wow. yeah, man. well one of the big things that I guess you, you both had to sort out was how you, how you were going to cast uh, Agu. And I wonder when in the process of going to and from Ghana, when, just how that all worked out that you ended up with this tremendous actor that play, who was not an actor prior to this film, from what I understand, at, uh, Abraham Atta. And just what how, how did that work out? Because it's kind of the movie doesn't work if you don't have a guy that can do that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the movie is... Uh, on the shoulders of this kid and if it's not convincing if uh, the acting feels false or, or forced then you lose your audience right um, I, I think that we knew that from the very beginning and the question was how to find him uh, some people assumed we might bring him in from the outside and anyone close to me knew that we were definitely going to cast locally uh, especially with kids I have tremendous faith in kids as actors there's something about uh, when asked to live in the make-believe world that's so much more accessible to them somehow. And I don't know when or where we lose it, but there's a there's obviously a place between innocence and awareness where uh, awareness and innocence is lost. Or awareness is gained, innocence is lost, and you somehow lose that connection with that make-believe side of yourself, the imagination. And, you know, actors like Idris are able to still access that, but that's through training, I suppose. You know, and, and, and it's obviously natural talent, but also a training to, to, to keep that tunnel or window open to the other side mm -hmm. of yourself um, but I have tremendous faith in, faith in kids retaining that mm. in this age you know casting uh, uh, you know a 10 to 13 year old is right at that cusp where it's starting to disappear I've cast mainly uh, a lot younger kids in my other films and um, we just didn't know you know if we were gonna have enough time though to, to find the right kid for this role and and really put the pressure on Harrison Nesbitt, the casting director, to find him and to be um, to be exhaustive in the process and, and not sort of just 
find the easy way and just give me five kids and say like, you know, that's all we can do it. And then we, he saw 2,500 kids wow. of which I saw a couple hundred. <clears throat> and then we, we narrowed that down to about 30 kids. Was there a lot of going back and forth to Ghana for this, or this is you go there for the trip that's going to be during the making of the film, and at that point you're picking from the finalists? We basically we, we hired a local casting director initially who did some forays into some of the schools, but we were, we were running into a lot of problems with the government and also with the schools in terms of permissions to get in there. Um, uh, Ghana is tremendously uh, uh, bureaucratic in terms of paperwork and approvals. So you just got to make sure everything's in order. And it took a long time to get those ducks in a row. Mm. And by that point, I thought we needed more help. So we sent in Harrison about a week before I got there. And he had about seven weeks to cast 39 roles, uh, speaking roles, and 300 non-speaking roles and uh, to find a bunch of kids. So it, it wasn't there wasn't a lot of back and forth. We were there. Once we were there, we knew we had time was running out. And within about seven weeks, we are going to have to make deals get them through wardrobe and figure out, you know, how to make this movie. Mm-hmm. One thing that I want to ask about, because, again, he didn't have experience from everything I've read. There was no prior experience. How did you guys work with him? Was there, is there specifically, I mean, Idris, one thing I've I've been told is that I, I certainly, I know you're a DJ as well, and I understand he's into music. Was yeah. that a way, were there ways like that to, to bond with him? No, no, no. Um <laughs> Uh, it's really interesting because you know he doesn't really turn it on into action, and uh, it took me a second to understand that. Like he, you, you'll have a meeting with him, you'll have an interview with him, and you know he's he isn't sort of like you know a, a talkative person, but he's there, a hundred percent. He's listening the whole time, and I realised that about him, and I realised that you know from my experience as an actor, you know when you've got an actor that lives off their instinct, you know. Don't talk about acting. Don't talk about anything you don't need to. You know, just go with. You know, he'll be there on the day. And the great thing is that I, I, I would, I would throw he, I would throw curveball, curveballs at him mm-hmm. to get him into certain places. And he was right there with me. He knew I was throwing a curveball. He would go from take to take <laughs> doing something different. And that was the bonding. Mm-hmm. If I tried to talk about it beforehand, it would just get sort of just, I, I, it'd kill our vibe immediately. Right. You know, there was no false sort of like, hey, let's be buddies and then work, right. you know. I think we got to a place where we just respected each other as both leading actors, and that was it. It wasn't, mm-hmm. he was little Ibrahim, never acted before. Right. No. I remember there was one scene, it's a beautiful scene, and we're losing the light. It's the scene where Agu comes to tell Commandant that twice he's dead. Carrie's freaking out because we're losing the fucking light. We had this lighting set up. I think we had lost a generator. He was like, he saw this, Carrie saw this little area and it was beautiful because the, 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 you know, the, the uh, smog, cloud, fog, whatever, mm-hmm. just started to drift and Carrie's like, we're going to shoot here. You sit up there, boom, boom, boom. And I remember, um, <clears throat> you know, you know, this, the, that sequence is quite an in, important part of the film. And I was thinking about it. I wasn't sure where he was in his head. But I remember, you know, he did the scene down there with 2IC. And then he came up. And I had to tell him, you know, you're my son. I think we did that in two, three takes. But we did it because Carrie didn't have no chance. We didn't have a chat about it. And I just remember that Agu was right, right there. And I remember just, you know, just looking into his eyes, you know. And he was carrying all the weight of 2IC carrying all the weight of this little nucleus starting to fall apart, okay? And it was right in his eyes, you know? 
I think I'd spoken to Carrie about it. Maybe I was like, this is what, you know, you know where we are. I was like, yeah, okay. And I was thinking, I do know where we are. <laughs> we ain't got time, you know, shoot. Man, it blew me away, you know, that, that man was, that boy was so connected into that moment where we'd come from and where we were going next and how significant it was. It was the first time my character says, you know, you're my son. Mm-hmm. I look, he was, you know, my son. It was, wow, it was a profound wow. little moment. Mm. Well, one thing that I read that you did at Idris was you and working with, because it's not only Abraham, but a whole group of obviously child actors, probably most of whom had limited experience, was to remain in, in character for the most part. Is that mm. the case? Yeah, I mean, you know, I quickly learned that... Um, you know, I'm I'm a pretty shy person, you know what I'm saying? So I'm working, turn the cameras on, I'm there. But if I'm not, really, I don't need the fanfare. But I realised wherever I was walking, the fan, fanfare was there. And it was partly to do with that. This is Idris Elba from the movies. Mm-hmm. And that, that's our commandant. And prior to me being there, you know, Carrie had taken these extras who had never done this before and turned them into an army in the most regimented way. So when I showed up, it was one, that's Idris, two, that's our commandment, mm-hmm. ship shape. And I realized, <laughs> actually, we, we were, I was being more effective to them if I stayed where I needed to be. <clears throat> In other words, whether we're shooting or not, I come, you stand up, you show me respect. If I ask you to do something, get on with it. I remember we was doing this one scene, the guys were playing around. In between takes, I gave him a bollocking right in the middle of the scene. I was like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And we it was you have that on tape. You do yeah, behind the scenes. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Bullshit! Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. But it was a, it was a hybrid of Idris and the commandant, and those guys were like, "Oh shit, yeah, you're right, yeah." And we got straight into it and did it. it was like, That's right. I, I think for the, for them and also for for Abraham and all the kids that are part of the SBU small boy unit. It's in the, the acting workshops, one of the most important things we taught them. Uh, was improvisation and listening and um, to, to never wait for us to say cut or action, but try to stay in that world as much as possible. Obviously they're kids and they're going to lose, they're going to get distracted. But for the most part, uh, you know, we do exercises where we, I'd always throw little things in there to see how they react to it. Do they look at the camera when I was talking to them? Don't look at me while I'm talking to you. Don't look at the camera when we're going, just stay in it. And that training I think was really helpful because how do we try to make them learn every scene exactly as the script is and get the words exactly right? They would have been so so confined by all of these sort of parameters, they would, they would cease being themselves. Yeah. So by being a lot looser, even the scene like where you capture uh, Agu for the first time, we didn't go in order at all for that. You know, no, the dialogue part. Mm-hmm. You know, once, mm-hmm. once you were there, you'd, every time we did a take, you'd kind of make it a little bit different. And so he would have to be paying attention to you. Yeah, uh, that's true. Well, one of the things that has been highly publicized is that over the course of these 35 days that you guys spent shooting this in Ghana, it sounds like it was the most kind of roller coaster of an experience since another movie that was made in, in the jungle, uh, Apocalypse Now, which obviously was you know had its own types of uh, unanticipated chaos. What were some of the things, if you can synopsize some of what you guys had to deal with, starting before I think the film even was in production with, with you, Carrie, it was kind of... Uh, off on the wrong foot health-wise, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did get malaria. <laughs> that that little thing, yeah. <laughs> we had just got back from, from scouting and, and casting in Liberia and Sierra Leone as well, so there was this moment where, like, my assistant and I both were just concerned about uh, Ebola at that time period. So malaria seemed like, you know, a weekend cold. And it's no joke, you know, 500,000 people die a year from malaria. It's a very serious issue, uh, but it's also very common, so... 
uh, I, many people on the on the production capital area, uh, and I would say mostly locals, like drivers, actors, you know. So that was like that was obviously a minor setback. But I think the the the, the <laughs> <laughs> the, the big, the bigger it was issues. Sick. It, it was sick. Yeah, it I lost some weight on the shoes. Wow! Good. Anyone out there looking to lose weight, I recommend. Well, I, I heard we also almost lost uh, Idris. Yeah, I mean this this story is yeah. kind of taking itself. Yeah. I mean, it's a moment that no one else would know about it right. unless you know I faced I faced my death and no one else knew about it at, until I told the story to some journalist and I was like, oh my god, he nearly lost his life. But the truth is, it was just me. Yeah, and we was in this sequence where we were sort of. Big, big, wide, uh, there's waterfall, and you know, you can see everyone trailing along underneath the waterfall. And there's a cut to the commander standing there just watching, and Algo goes past and he takes a smoke. And that perch that I was perched on is a rock. And I think, you know, it was like they'd given us a big warning, like, it's very slippery here, guys, just be careful, you know, this is a waterfall, so the rocks are very slippery. And um, while we were waiting to set the extras on that side of the waterfall and then come back was going to do it in one time it was that dangerous it was that treacherous you know i'm standing there waiting i put my foot up just thinking about where i'm going to sit i put my foot up and i kind of slip on it i put my hand on a branch that i think it's a tree i mean i think it's a tree but it's a branch and it snaps and i go wow and i look down it's just rocks you know and i would have i would have fallen 12 feet and then another 100 feet you know and it's the fun, and, and I, I kind of held myself, and then the guy kind of caught me. John Mallard, John, yeah, yeah, the first AD. Like, I looked him in the eye, and we looked each other, and I was like, okay. Well, between that and snakes, yeah, you got and right against the wall after that. I remember that because we took some selfies <laughs> <laughs> under the waterfall. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. you know, that smell. Now I know why yeah, you were there. Yeah. That smell was in my pants, bro. Like, yeah, and just to briefly mention, I mean, other things that have come up. I guess you were around snakes, scorpions. You had folks that. We're not necessarily going to show up every day. You had uh, food that was not being delivered. Is that is that so? Anyway, we, we, it, it was. It sounds crazy, but we have just a few more minutes, and so I want to make sure we touch upon another interesting thing that your movie represents, which is kind of a turning point in the way movies are distributed. And I I want to I guess begin by asking when in the equation Netflix came along as a possible partner. Obviously, they had a history of producing original TV and recently documentaries, but never feature films in in the way that they have with you guys so when did they come along and carrie also for you how important is it to you to have your work seen on a big screen versus just having the largest possible audience so Mm. netflix and that conundrum that it presents uh so they came on in in the acquisition period we we shopped the movie around as you would any traditional sort Mm -hmm. of independently financed film uh, every sort of special division, even the bigger studios, watched the film, and, and we waited to see who would make an offer. And we fielded a couple offers, but Netflix came in with this big thing that we really couldn't say no to, although I would have said no had there not been a theatrical component to it. Uh, I don't think I would have agreed, to, no matter how much money. Because we had other offers, and I, it was important to me that, that it's seen as a film, and and not just in terms of perception, but by audiences, mm-hmm. seen as a, as a film that can be a theatrical experience. It was executed for that it was mixed for that and colored for that and i don't think anything beats no matter how great uh, a television show is nothing beats the engagement of being in a, in a dark room with a bunch of people watching a film together and how the emotions of that experience are exponential due to everyone's sharing it together um i remember showing even true detective to a group of friends 60 people in one room and that was the best viewing i've seen of that show 
ever wasn't in that room with other people. And it's just, I think it's something about that collective experience that makes things so much more powerful. I know people who watch this film at home will probably still appreciate it, but the chances of them being distracted over the course of it are so much higher. Mm-hmm. And and it is, do you think, though, that you guys both, because you have such rich histories in TV, whether it's True Detective or The Wire or Luther or whatever, that you were more receptive to the idea, both of you, that while it's going to be different, as long as you do have that theatrical option, it's not a uh, lesser than way of, of experiencing a movie, just a different way. Is that... I mean, you know, for me, you know, every movie I saw that, you know, predates 1972 was on a small screen. Mm-hmm. Some of the greatest movies uh, in the world and, and some I did not have the experience of, uh, of a room. So I'm a little more, so my perspective is a little bit more like, look, you know, uh, the, 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 the advantages of this distribution method is because this subject matter just would not be seen by this many people okay absolutely and I agree that that experience um, of, 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 of seeing it at, at home means that the audience have sort of distractions and whatnot but I suspect that that's way better mm-hmm. and probably signs of a more modern audience mm-hmm. at the moment mm-hmm. you'll never lose the experience of going to the cinema that's always going to be there but I just think People are on the move. People are consuming everything slightly different. They've got so much choice. And, um, you know, Beast of No Nation, yes, you know, uh, would definitely, you know, people in London and New York and Paris and France and maybe parts of Africa where, you know, you'd get a cinema experience would go. But this model, I I just think it's just an important, you know, mechanism for the future of film where... You know, the, the subject matter is difficult mm-hmm. and that, you, you know, you can get a bigger audience to see it, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the fact. More yeah. people have seen this movie now uh, than had it, had a, that traditional platform release. Um, you know, maybe it in the best possible scenario, if it had garnered buzz in that way and slowly rolled out, we still have had more people see it than, than in the best possible scenario of that one. Yeah. yeah. For sure. And, and I think the future, you know, the future will sort of, I think, you know, audiences are going to go that way a little bit more, yeah. more and more. Choices. But it's great for people like myself and Carrie who care about films that aren't blockbuster hits and so on and so forth. And that actually, we might get to a lot of people. Right. And I think that's, a, I think we're very fortunate that we've got this film in this time doing that. Well, last question is just for each of you, if you could control what people take away from this film what would that be and then also for each of you there's all kinds of excitement and, and, and uh, questions about what's next for you I mean Idris I'm sure you if you did a shot for every time uh, somebody brought up James Bond now these days mm-hmm. uh, you'd be a very drunk man is there any is there anything to that and Carrie uh, you know people people yearn for your uh, version of True Detective is there any is there any chance we'd ever see you come back for that and but first and foremost I do hope you'll address those questions but first and foremost what do you hope they take away from this one I, you know for me it's just an education you know it's the same education that I got um, you know getting involved in this film um, and you know sort of just being aware that actually to this day there's probably about 300,000 child soldiers Still, still out there right now. Who knew? Who would know? Watch this film, take that home, and be aware of that. Um, and um, that's the take home. Mm-hmm. But also, just you know, this is a beautiful 
well taught, well thought out film. You know, and we're filmmakers. You know, we're not activists. We're filmmakers. You know, take away the, the 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 beauty of the construct of that film, and and you know, and how it made you feel. Take that away. You know, to every film student or actor that's watching that, that's your benchmark. That's what you should look at. You know. Um, I can't let that part be go away, though. Would you? Are you open to that idea of the uh, possible? Uh, oh, of Bond. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I've honestly just stopped. I've been talking about it. I just um, every time I. You know, it's funny though. Yesterday I was at uh, the governor's ball. Yeah. I was at the bar, and uh, I just just looked left. It was Daniel Craig. <laughs> he came up to me. He looked me in the eye. And he grabbed my face. He literally kissed me on the cheek. And I was like, man, you. And he was like, what am I going to say? They asked me if you could play Bond. What am I going to say? No. <laughs> and walked away. <laughs> That's perfect. That's awesome. Uh, wow. And, and uh, Carrie? I, I don't want to riff too hard on this. I think the most important thing for me is that people are moved. I, I try to create an experience, uh, and if people walk away with more learning from it or a better understanding of themselves, the world they live in, then, then great. More than anything, I want someone to feel something, and it's so hard these days to feel anything. We're so inundated with media that that uh, if you're able to have that emotional experience during a, a film, be it uh, an elated one or a sad one, or the the, tra- the tragedy that's sort of put out here, ending with a, uh, a modicum of hope, um, I just want that. Uh, I think everyone wants that in some way. And in terms of uh, your your part B, yes, um, no one's asked me to be Bond yet, so uh, <laughs> not sure right. where where the producers are on that one. So, well, thank you, uh, thank you both very much for doing this. I appreciate it. And congratulations on the film. Thank you, man. Good luck okay. editing, editing this. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.